Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with two guests, which is always really fun. We have Tiffany Mura, who's the SVP Health Practice Lead at MadPal. And we also have Erica Devine, Associate Director, Patient Experience at Atsuka. Thank you so much, Erin. So I just wanted to get this out of the way. All thoughts, opinions are my own and don't represent my employment with Otsuka. Today, we're going to be talking about a really fun and interesting and important topic, which has to do with patient experience and how we can use sort of research uh, fundamentals to improve that experience while driving business impact as well. So lots of great stuff to dig into. Welcome, guests. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Likewise. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining. Got JH here, too. Yeah, I feel like when you mentioned, you know, the healthcare experience, everyone listening probably immediately goes to some horrible experience they had at some point. So uh, hopefully it'd be cool. We can take them through there, you know, in terms of why that happens and what you can do to improve it. Absolutely. All right. So as JH was saying, you know, I think we've all had experiences as patients. We've all been a patient at some point in our lives. And maybe some of those experiences have left a little something to be desired. So just to kick things off, you know, why are businesses really focusing on the patient experience now? And are they, are they doing it enough? Like, where are we in this, in this journey? I think it depends on where in the health industry you're looking at. You know, we're both here kind of today in the context of uh, pharmaceuticals and life sciences. I think there are companies like the those in the um, health system space, the hospitals and the health delivery systems that are looking at it one way. And then there's the product companies who are a little bit late to the game. You know, really, if you're familiar with the work of Joseph Pine and the experience economy, we're very deep into this experience economy at this point. But the product companies, you know, the farm and life sciences companies really became companies as a a very product-focused journey. And so they're really starting to try to make the shift to true patient centricity, and they're just starting to get there. Yeah, I would echo that, Tiffany. And I do think the pandemic kind of exacerbated a lot of this much more quickly. I don't think patient centricity as an approach is a brand new concept. I mean, we've been hearing about it for a couple decades, but I think the tides are changing in the environment. So, you know, Tiffany, to what you were saying, you know, our key stakeholders that we work with care about experience, they care about outcomes and they measure it and they pay out on it. And so for pharma to be able to have these discussions with payers, our government regulators, you know, our, the, the people that are providing the care, we have to be able to measure this and, and speak, speak to those metrics as well. Where we are, I think we have some room to improve because again, it's very hard to change a traditional kind of approach where it's always been, we're product makers, we're drug makers. And now we're moving a little bit more holistically to, we do provide medications that treat or um, mitigate symptoms, but we're also providing an experience for patients. And that is somewhere that takes time, that takes time to kind of move that ship. And, and so I think we're making big strides, but we definitely have room for improvement to get there. Nice. Maybe just as somebody who's not super familiar about this, you know, the industries and the nuances here, which I'd imagine is true for some listeners, you know, my mind immediately goes to patient experience, I think waiting room, it sounds like obviously, there's a lot more categories here that you're breaking down of like the life sciences and the pharma side versus the services side. Could you maybe just give a little bit of like context on like, what when, when you're using those terms, kind of like what experiences fall into each just to help make it tangible for folks? Absolutely. You know, it's, as the health practice lead at MadPow, I'm sort of looking across the entire industry. So, you know, you've got everybody, you've got a, a number of different sectors within the industry. You've got the ones that we're sort of dealing with as patients every day, the doctor's office that we go to, the hospitals that we're be, being treated at. So those types of healthcare facilities, which we also talk about in industry terms as health systems. Then you've got your health insurance companies that 
great monolith that you're dealing with when you're trying to get those services paid for. And then you've got the products and the devices, the, the drugs and the devices that you might be getting as part of your treatment. Um, and that's really what falls into the pharmaceutical and life sciences product company. And then you've got this fascinating kind of fourth sector within the, the bigger healthcare sector, which is the, the new, new entrants, all the digital health players, the niche companies, you know, like Mark Cuban's company that's selling the drugs with, you know, a, a small margin markup on it. So I kind of lumped those all together because these are folks who have built companies that weren't highly entrenched in the industry, but are trying to really disrupt it and really focus much more on being patient-centric companies and answering patient patient needs in a way that the other three sectors haven't been able to do quite as well because of their legacy, their size, sort of how they matured as companies. Yeah. And and from the patient experience, all those come together often into one moment, right? You've got the medicine, you've got the patient office, you've got, how am I going to pay for this? How's this insurance interacting with this experience? And I think, I wonder, you know, it feels like something where maybe in the past patient experience wasn't the top concern because I don't know, was there less competition? There's more regulation? Like, why is it that now this is something companies are focusing on? Is it we'll lose you as a customer if we don't? Is it a moral imperative? You know, why are we here in this moment now where people are starting to focus on this more and more? So I can certainly jump in from a life sciences perspective. So again, I think it is a little bit of all of those things. Your mission and your vision is starting to change a little bit. We also see that patients are more empowered. They're more connected. They're more influential than ever. They also are shouldering a lot more of their healthcare costs with the designs, the benefit designs of some of these payer plans. You know, they're informed. And the other thing, research absolutely shows that they are requesting and they have expectations of pharma to step up and do a little bit more than just provide a product. And Tiffany, when you're talking about all the different stakeholders, so, you know, what they all evaluate and how they kind of fit into delivering that whole healthcare experience to a patient, you know, it takes everybody together to deliver that. And so if we're disjointed or we're siloed or we're not speaking the same language, then we don't have a coordinated effort. It becomes very fragmented and becomes ultimately a terrible experience for patients. Absolutely. I, and I agree with everything that Erica said. And the thing I, I would just add is that sort of the rest of the world has, has advanced greatly compared to healthcare when it comes to the experience economy and focusing on consumer experiences. And so you have folks in the healthcare system who are having you know, different expectations of the system than the system is ready to provide because they're used to dealing with the Amazons, the Netflix, these highly personalized, highly integrated experiences. And you go into the system, which, like Erica said, has a lot of players that are very disjointed and with different business goals, different abilities to speak to one another. And it creates oftentimes a very bumpy patient experience. The integrated part and the silos, that's all making sense to me. Uh, some of these examples I can think of, you know, cases where like the experience would be poor, it's hard to, you know, communicate or fill something out for my insurance company. I can't get an appointment with my provider or I'm stuck in the waiting room or whatever. And then all the way down to pharma, you could even imagine like the packaging is hard to open or I can't follow the instructions and I don't know how to take this drug that's really important and I don't want to mess it up. I mean, you're also talking about all the intersection of these things. Like where are you seeing the most like innovation or the most change as, um, as we talk about that stuff? I think a lot of the innovation is unfortunately coming from those outside the space, but they're also struggling at the same time. I mean, I think Amazon is a great example when they thought they were going to be able to construct their own health system themselves. And they had to end up acquiring one medical because the relationship with the insurance companies was too complicated to establish from the ground up. They needed to buy an entity that had a relationship established. 
But I think it, that's, you know, that's a good example where I think some serious disruption is going to come from because they're kind of looking at it from the Amazon lens, not from the, the legacy healthcare lens. Yeah, I think that's a great point too, Tiffany, because, you know, there's a lot of push from these companies that really have set the bar extremely high around customer experience. And so while we are not in Amazon and while a life science are held to different regulations, which makes it somewhat challenging for us, we are still held to that same benchmark. And so again, it ratchets it up at a, a bit. Uh, the expectations are quite higher for pharma, but I think we would be remiss to say, you know, that there are ways that we can work within the regulations and the guidelines and, you know, kind of, um, looking at the old adage that it's just like pharma doesn't, we don't work with patients. We work with healthcare providers that I'm seeing a lot of change, even in that, in the way that we engage with patients, you know, there's organizations now that have, you know, experienced liaisons that work with reimbursement and logistics with patients directly. We have, you know, nurse educators that are working with patients. And so I think you see it, it's a very slow and very gradual shift, but there is starting to see that you're starting to see this opening up of how pharma engages not only with the healthcare providers or the proxies that are influential in patient care, but we're also starting to have that engagement directly with patients so that we can identify exactly what it is they need. It feels like there's so much upside here too, because of, I guess, like two things. One, it's hard. And so if it were easy, everyone would have figured it out already, right? And so if you can figure it out, that's amazing. And number two, I think in a lot of cases, people are going into a patient experience, maybe not thrilled to be there, right? Like all the time, probably happy they're getting some treatment or whatever, but you know, it's not going like uh, to see a movie or concert or whatever, right? And so if you can make that experience into a positive one, that's really powerful, right? So I think, you know, across both of those, there's probably a ton of opportunity to really delight patients or to improve their experience. There's an enormous amount of opportunity. And these organizations are going to start having to evolve to that for a a number of reasons. One, there's the competitive threats of the external players like the Amazons coming in. But two, you know, the government's starting to put into place regulations, starting with the government-funded plans in which they have to demonstrate patient outcomes. And it's really difficult to demonstrate good patient outcomes without a good patient experience because you want people to come back and, you know, get the treatment they need, follow the protocols that they need to do. And part of that is making sure that they're supported as an individual, which really is a very experience-oriented lens on it. We're talking a lot about experience. And I feel like anytime you talk about experience, it's like, well, you need to understand the users and, and figure out where in that experience you can actually improve things and where the pain points are. That seems hard in, in this sort of space and industry, right? With HIPAA and I'm sure many other regulations that I don't even know of. How do you actually go about doing that? Like, is it is it just you go find the users and you just have a couple extra hoops to jump through? Or is it like a fundamentally different approach about how you do that research and, and gather those insights? I can share a little bit from a life sciences perspective, you know, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't call out a little bit around the differences and kind of the way we traditionally have gleaned those insights and then how we're kind of starting to shift. I know, Tiffany, you had uh, co-authored a really great article and it was around market research and experience design and leveraging that within the life sciences space. And it really did a great job, I think, of highlighting the traditional model value and then kind of some of this experience design where we're starting to see pharma shift into. So traditionally, we do a lot of qualitative research and it really focuses in and tends to zero in on core key business questions for the organization. So you don't really get that holistic um, 360 view. I think it's like, you know, we're, we're 
really laser focused on a couple of different things. And while that provides great value to understand potentially your market opportunity with a product, for instance, it doesn't really tell you the nuance. It doesn't give you the color. So you're really seeing it in black and white. And so this is where I think like those design agencies, those human-centered design agencies come into play. I can personally say working with a couple of different industry partners, we have a lot of experience in traditional market research tactics. Not so many are familiar with human-centered design or design thinking. And so if you don't have that expertise in-house, I think it is absolutely fundamental that you work with a company that does. We know that budgets are limited. We know resources are limited. So when you have that opportunity to work with a patient and, you know, to your point, JH, we do a lot with ad boards. We do a lot of think tanks, pulling patients together. You know, a lot of these companies now have advisory boards. So they're really like councils of patients where you have agreements that, you know, You look at it an above brand tactic, you bring them together and you help to co-create a solution around some of these hypotheses or insights that you're developing off of the traditional market research that you're gathering. So there's a couple of ways that we do it. But again, I think what's somewhat new and is sort of an approach change for traditional pharma is really looking at that qualitative capture, that not just saying, hey, what are these key questions we want to understand and tell me what your thoughts are on this, but really taking solutions to the table and designing those experiences around the end user. And that's something where we're starting to see a a very big shift because we've always kind of done it predicated on assumptions of what we think we know. And then we build the product and then it's like, how did you like this? And sometimes those outcomes or results are very different than what we expected them to be. I think some of what JH was getting into too is, you know, how do you find people to talk to (laughs) working like with, you know, obviously you're going to work with the HIPAA compliance and and other things, uh, privacy that you want to be thinking about when potentially dealing with some very personal sort of topics. So how do you go about finding people to get these insights from? So we definitely use recruiters. We also work with other companies. We also work through our patient experience liaisons, which is individuals that work and work directly with patients. I think the biggest factor is, is one, making sure your legal ethics and compliance folks are involved in that process from the get-go, making sure that those patients and care partners that are working with you are very clear on what it is that you're doing, the tactics that you're trying to learn about, and then ultimately what you're going to do with that information. Absolutely. You, you have to look at privacy, of course. But again, there's ways to do it and making sure that all parties that are coming to the table are comfortable with what you're kind of discussing um, and making sure that you are committed to those guardrails and making sure that you're not bleeding over certain certain lines. But there's absolutely ways to do that. It just takes longer. I mean, that's that's the trick is, you know, it takes longer. I think it's really important to work with an agency that is familiar with research in this space because, you know, they know how to have the conversations with the client as well as the client's legal team to ensure that, you know, all the compliance procedures are being followed. You know, we take time to be trained on what that that particular company's processes and procedures are because there's material that can be uncovered like adverse events and product complaints and that sort of thing that need to be addressed. But the other thing that's super important too and why it's important to work with folks who understand research in this space is 
you want to make sure that the study design isn't further harming the patients. Because a lot of times, you know, it's not just about the privacy, it's about what the patient's experiencing with the particular disease that they may have at this particular point in time. You know, with the project we did with Erica, we were dealing with folks that were that had mental health conditions and some very severe, some were patients that had schizophrenia. And um, so we really had to consider, you know, what would make them most comfortable in the research sessions? And, you know, how do we design those so that they, they feel like they can openly share in a way that, that doesn't, you know, feel threatening to them, that gives them the space to rest and to, you know, feel like they can bring the, their whole selves to the table. You know, if you're looking at diseases like cancer, you know, depending on the severity of that, that's another, you know, area where you've really got to be thoughtful about how is the research going to impact the people who are giving us the responses. Yeah, to go a little further on that. So you find the people, you know, it took a little longer, but you got them. You're having these sessions. And in like that mental health example, how do you make sure that you do like respect the, you know, the person you're speaking to and, and treat that well? Is it like, you know, you have the skilled research facilitator involved, but do you also like in, pull in a mental health professional about like best practices or, you know, in, in the cancer case, like consult a doctor or some other professional about like the best way to do that? Or yeah, how do you pull that off? Yeah, it depends on the condition. All of the above, I would say, depending on on what we're dealing with, it varies on the disease by disease basis. But the first, the first and most important thing is making sure you have researchers who are trained in, in empathetic techniques for doing the research, and that they kind of lay out up front, you know, how they're going to structure the session, what you know, what the expectations are, where they can take pauses, and what they're doing, and and really making sure that they've got this mutual buy-in from the research participant that they're comfortable with how this is going to proceed. Eric, anything to add there? Yeah, no, I, I think you've really nailed it, Tiffany. I think the only other thing I would add, you know, regarding how life sciences engage with patients is you have to also look at, you know, are, are you looking at unbranded, non-promotional insight capture? Are you looking at product-specific insight capture? So depending on which side of the house that falls, sometimes those channels by which we work with certain patients changes a little bit. But again, it's just it's again, going back to those guardrails, making sure that you are doing it compliantly and of course, ethically to all those things that you're saying, Tiffany, having somebody that is well-versed in working with patients, they know how to speak and you know use terminology that is receptive and, and favorable to the patients that are participating and really just have that general empathetic perspective in order to, to, to do and run those sessions. Yeah, the one thing I'd add to, JH, back to your point about finding these folks, one of the other challenges, and I'm going to fully admit we don't have this one solved yet, but is really, you know, how do you be most inclusive, particularly when you're talking about conditions like mental health? Because the more severe the illness, the more likely that you may have patients that are unhoused, that are in, you know, in group living facilities, that are incarcerated. And figuring out, you know, how do you incorporate those voices into your research? And that's something that we're digging into a little bit further but it's very important to make sure that, you know, you're you're casting a wide enough net that you're really talking to your whole audience. That's a great point, because I know, you know, historically with, you know, testing of medications and a lot of the sort of research in the health space, it hasn't been the most inclusive, right? Including, right. not including women, for example, right? So is that something that's kind of top in mind more generally? Very much so. We've done studies, you know, where um, we've included Spanish first research, you know, utilizing researchers that are, you know, really skilled in cultural competency. If we're talking to a particular population, particularly populations that, to your point, you know, may have not been included or included in appropriate ways in previous research. We've talked a bit about, right, recruiting participants and sort of gathering insights that are going to be useful for ultimately creating a better patient experience. But maybe we could talk about 
more broadly, like where are we trying to end up? What does it mean to have a good patient experience? Because I know there's a lot that goes into that, but in terms of, I guess, a little bit of a framework of how do you think about transforming a business you know, on a spectrum from patients who are those <laughs> to, wow, we've really, you know, delivered something we can be proud of here. What are the sort of ingredients and things you want to be thinking about to get there? Erin, just to chime in here, and I think this goes a little bit back to the previous question, is ensuring one, that we have representation, that, you know, we have a heterogeneous sample that is providing input and insights into what it is we're trying to deliver. And when we talk about what that baseline is that we're delivering versus what that ideal state is. The ideal state, from my perspective, is ensuring that the experience that our company is delivering is meeting or exceeding the expectations of our patients and care partners. That's, to me, the ultimate goal. So one, you know, when we look at, and I can tell you, even within life sciences, we have been looking at this very, very heavily, not only in from the research and development arm where clinical to know historically are really challenged and we haven't done a great job in getting that representative sample, but all the way through the commercialization, you know, insights, market research, qualitative research that we're doing, so we're finding we're not doing a great job. And so when we look at that, we are actually putting together guidelines that are specific to how do you ensure that your recruiting tactics and that you know the ad boards and those qualitative research activities are incorporating not only the competence, but making sure that we have the right people at the table. So it's really actually having almost a steering committee come together, holding the organization accountable to all those function areas that would be running that type of research and saying, you know, are we measuring this? Are we looking at it? And are we employing the, the guidelines that we're putting into place? So that's a, that's a big change. And it's something I think that we all said was, you know, we're, we're committed to doing it, but now we're actually putting a little bit more teeth behind it. But, you know, when I look at that, it's, it's really starting from ensuring that you have the right people, but then also ensuring that you are measuring what it is you're putting out there. So I think Tiffany, referring back to your article too, which I, I love that you put this in here. You know, market research usually tends to answer a key business question and then pharma takes that information and we develop a solution and then we put it out there. We haven't done such a great job of closing the loop and really understanding was the solution we put out there really meeting or exceeding the expectations of the patient. And if we find out that we're falling short, are we going back into the process and looking to improve and iterate and make that experience solution program better. And so that's really, I think the bigger change there is really looking at it that we have to follow through that entire cycle and ensure that we are measuring the impact and making changes when needed. That reminds me a lot of the, what you hear about in sort of digital design a lot, which is this continuous discovery, you know, program of we learned, we built, we measured, we learned, we built, we measured, and it never ends, right? Because the learning is, uh, you know, it's a fun part of it. But if you, you don't use it and measure it and show its impact, you really haven't done all the work, right? So Aaron, I would love to just jump in on that because, you know, digital therapeutics is, is a big area for us and for many industry um, providers. And I think there is actually a, a very interesting part of this. So we know with 
when we talk about a digital therapeutic, making sure that we're designing that solution around the user experience is more important than ever, because we know that in order for that solution to work, we have to have repeated engagement. What we find, though, is that's not always the case, though. You know, we still predicate our solution on what we assume our end user needs, and then we put it out there. And that's why we have this whole graveyard of apps just sitting there not being used. I think there's absolutely room for improvement there too. And probably even if not more important to really ensure that you're capturing that user feedback very early on in the iterative process. You know, I think a lot of times we come late to the game on that as well. Yeah. And that's a great point too, because we talked about, you know, you've got your in-office experience, the insurance experience, the medications and so on. And then you've got the the digital and the in real life. So there's all these dimensions to it. And I think that's why, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about really aligning the entire organization around some of these learnings too, when you think about the entire customer journey. So I imagine that's not the easiest thing to do. So curious to talk a little bit about how do you actually, how do you work toward making that happen across customer touch points? It's very challenging. I mean, you know, I've worked both on the client and the agency side, particularly, you know, worked on the client side in pharma. So I've, I've also had firsthand experience on Erica's side of the desk. And I mean, in my dream world, like if we're solely looking at pharma, they would start the patient centricity initiatives when they're doing compound discovery. So when they're trying to say like, when they've got the bench chemists looking at different things that might be a good treatment for something that they've actually done patient research up front and already have identified, like, what is it about that particular disease state do patients really want to treat? Because it's hard with a product that's not a digital one to iterate. Like once the compound's approved and on the market, like it's, it's not so easy to go back and, and make you know, wholesale substantive changes. So I would love to see it start back there, but it's just an entirely different mindset because, you know, it's very much an in the lab type of work stage at that point. But really, I think zooming back out and and knowing what the patients want, even from day one, can make a huge difference. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research. And we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more. So we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. A bit of a tangent, but like culturally, I imagine this is challenging, right? So you have all of these, you know, scientists and people with, you know, uh, probably pretty quantitative backgrounds, like a a crowd that's pretty familiar with like p-values and other stuff from clinical trials and things. Is there any challenge of getting people to accept like in the utility and and benefit of like qualitative data? And just like the second part of that would be usually the anecdote to that we hear from a lot of researchers is, well, you have these video clips from the sessions, show these to people. These are so impactful and stuff. I'd imagine you probably don't have that because of all the privacy concerns. So like, yeah, I'm just curious to hear if that dynamic is, is something you have to navigate as well. So JH, I can I can definitely chime in on this one. And I know Tiffany probably knows this all too well just from serving on both sides. I know we've had discussions around this. Yes, it is absolutely challenging to get individuals to appreciate the merit or value of qualitative research and really looking at it even more specifically around design, experience design. Again, you know, I think what we can measure 
easily is what we tend to prioritize. And, you know, knowing that, you know, pharma is very considerate around their budgets, we always have cuts, resources are not, you know, never ending. So the first things that tend to go are the ones that are not easily measured. It's again, another cultural shift, I think, when we look at the way pharma has traditionally done market research activities and understanding that while that is all extremely valuable, it's also imperative that we understand that qualitative experience design, the empathic part of that journey, and what are the psychological factors that drive behaviors. So I can tell you this is something that goes on and on with market research teams, with a lot of our other teams that are working from the patient engagement standpoint. I would say in order to make this kind of stick from a a cultural perspective and a patient-centric approach is that one, you have to have buy-in and not just buy-in, but commitment from your executive leadership. If it's not there, it doesn't bleed throughout the organization. Understanding that one, that's where the financial dollars come from, but also they are key in ensuring that all function areas are marching to the same objective. And so the second part of that is how are we measuring or holding people within industry accountable to ensure that we're capturing this 360 view? And so that's also a challenge. I think sometimes the metrics by which different function areas are assessed on are quite different. So everybody will come together and say, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. Yes, we should be doing this. But at the end of the day, people are being held to different metrics. So I think that's something that needs to be thought of from kind of just a, an organizational leadership approach. I think it also has to continue to trickle down from the FDA as well. I mean, they've they've put out a lot of you know guidances on on being more patient centric. But I think one of the challenges that from the pharmaceutical side that you run into often is legal and regulatory misinterpreting patient research as being somehow promotional, or even HCP research, uh, healthcare provider research, being promotional. And it's a very hard mindset to undo that you know they assume that marketing is a uh, is trying to just get the brand message out there more versus really trying to to help patients. That's interesting. And what's the impact of that, of viewing that research as promotional? How is that a challenge? Well, once if they view it as promotional, they won't allow it to be done. And they do set caps on the amount of research you can do in a year because of the number of patients that you would be touching, particularly if you, if the brand will be discussed at all. But one of the ways around that is to do it more focused on the disease state, which in many ways is often more valuable. But even then, I still think there's a little bit of reticence on the behalf of uh, the med legal teams to or legal regulatory teams to do that. That's really interesting. It's a great point, Tiffany. And I would just add to just from FDA, I mean, we see the patient-focused drug development guidances coming down the pike. So there are some expectations and requirements from FDA to put forward patient-reported outcomes and really measure that patient experience. I would still say we have a long way to go because the other thing is, is FDA puts a lot of emphasis on the clinical outcome. And so sometimes it's hard to design a trial to make sure that you're measuring all the things that will absolutely help get your drug approved, but also ensuring that you are putting those quality or those patient interested, like those end metrics within that trial too, and making sure you're measuring that as well. And you had asked a really good question. What happens when we don't really align on those two things. And I think a great example of this, and I think it just illustrates the issue perfectly. You know, let's just say large pharma company measures a drug, you know, they, they develop a drug to help a very disfiguring and very 
challenging skin condition. And so they run the clinical trials. And one of the things they look at is how many days within the month can we keep that patient symptom free? And so the, cl- the drug performed beautifully in the clinical trial. They thought it was gonna, they were going to just nail it. It was going to hit it out of the park. And then all of a sudden, they realized that the drug wasn't really taking off the way they thought it was. Patients weren't really staying on therapy. And so when they brought patients back to say, okay, you know, what's your experience with the medication? You know, how does this look for you? What they were finding was, one, the goal did not align. So the number one thing patients wanted that were living with this condition was to be able to leave their house. That was their, that was their number one goal. And what they also found was there was a severe side effect with the drug, which was diarrhea. And so what they were finding was, while it did a great job in clearing up the skin condition, the side effect really didn't align with their end goal, which was really to just be able to leave, travel, do things freely with without worry. So again, I think it's one of those things where we look at, or we look at clinical endpoints, but are we really taking into consideration what the goals are for treatment from the patient? And are we measuring that as well? And that's the the 360 you're talking about, right? Because I imagine, you know, in marketing, we talk all the time, literally about cell painkillers, not vitamins. We're talking about, you know, curing pain here, like an acute issue. But do you really understand what the underlying issue is or the most important issue to solve? Because maybe you can't always solve them all or there are trade-offs. And I think too about probably a lot of patients are taking like multiple drugs, <laughs> you know, and so that's part of it too, right? Are, are you, is that something you're able to research the interaction of sort of their entire healthcare experience? Yeah, I mean, it definitely that's measured during the, the clinical trial, but I think then, then it sort of starts to fall off because there's no good unified view of the patient experience. And I think that's who's going to be the winners, whoever can really provide this view you know, even if it's if it's just a player that's somehow aggregating this and, and allowing the different different uh, sectors of the industry to be able to see this, it'll be much better. But you know, what patients on an Otsuka therapy are experiencing because they are on one of their drugs versus you know something else that they're taking from another company, they may not know unless the patient picks up the phone and says, "Hey, I'm having a, a weird side effect." And there's also you know not always transparency for the doctors to understand what the full picture is or the health insurance companies to understand the full pi- what the full picture is and what the different factors are that might be influencing the patient's progression through the disease. Can either of you think of examples in the other direction of like this drug was really, you know, effective and having all this, you know, impact on reducing the the illness or the underlying issue, but people weren't sticking with it for some reason, something about the, you know, the experience of how you had to remember when to take it or apply it or whatever. And that like that experience design or the, the kind of patient centric piece like helped unlock that so that they could get the benefit from the medication. I can share an example. It may not be medication specific, but I can definitely share an example of where, you know, maybe we missed the mark. And then it was like, hmm, after we brought patients together and really talked through, we're like, there's some improvement here to be made. And I would say that has to do with translation. So, you know, a lot of pharma companies put out resources that are patient care partner facing, and then we translate them, right? We have them translated, certified into other languages. And what we were finding out was that, and it really came from one of our Spanish speaking patients in one of the sessions that said, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. They, they saw one of our disease state resources and they said, what you're saying here doesn't really resonate as to, I think, the way you want it to say it. And so this really kicked off a huge like initiative within the organization because we were saying, you know, it's not just enough to take an English translated resource and just translate it word for word into Spanish or Chinese, for instance. 
there's actual ways and nuance in the way that individuals would speak and and it doesn't necessarily hit the mark. So what we what we realize we need to really do is work with organizations that incorporate cult- cultural competence, bring patients in that might be, you know, Spanish or Chinese as their first language and actually show them, "Hey, this is what we want to say. How would you state this? How would you want this to be worded so that it's understandable to you and that you would be able to take action on it?" So it was really, I think, a big shift and knowing how many dollars go into direct-to-consumer marketing, all those pieces that we put together for patients. If they can't understand it or it's, you know, if it's not easily understood, it's not going to resonate. So that that would I would say would be a good example of something that we we worked through fairly recently. You know, another example I can think of, you know, for why patients, you know, have a great experience on a particular treatment, then don't stay on therapy is of insurance. I mean, you know, until insurance is with the individual and not given through the employer, you know, or changes job to job, that's where you're going to run into issues, you know, because a patient may be on something and suddenly lose coverage for it, you know, and that, you know, they may have loved that particular drug, they start a new job, they get a new employer with a new health plan, and they can no longer get that covered. And then what are they supposed to do? You know, if it's something that's really expensive, like a biologic or something like that, where they can't be paying, you know, thousands of dollars out of pocket, they're kind of stuck. That's a Great point, Tiffany. And and really insurance holds a lot of the cards in in how that experience is is delivered. I would say even taking that a, a step back further, you know, when we we do research and develop and we run clinical trials, they're done in a in a vacuum. You know, they're heavily monitored, everything's kind of put in place to ensure that that patient is is following the protocol. But real world experience can look quite different when you start to incorporate all these other environmental and external factors that play into that. So I think, again, getting a little bit better with that as well, like once we have something come to commercialization and to really understand what the experience looks like on that arm and being able to marry that with some of the quantitative you know, metrics data that we are capturing around utilization. Yeah, tangentially, I'll add to that, but it's something that's become very, very front and center, and it's an, an incredibly important thing. Is you know this issue of social determinants of health, and you know what what in the real world of the patient is getting in the way of them staying compliant with a particular treatment and having a good experience? Because you know you may have the best treatment in the world, you know, and it, it might solve all their problems, but you know if they can't afford it, or if you know it's a diabetes treatment and they can they can pay for the medication, but they live in a food desert and they can't eat healthily you know, that's going to diminish their experience. So I think the industry as a whole is taking a much closer look at this. It's also, again, a tough problem to solve. I mean, none of these are, none of these are uh, quick hits and, and easy to fix ones, but knowing what they're, you know, struggling with that might not have anything to do with the, the treatment itself, but heavily impacts their health and relation to whatever disease it is, is incredibly important. Yeah, there's something there that does feel when you kind of zoom out and squint a little that it is pretty analogous to, you know, the research and design work that happens on like the technology and and kind of more, you know, software side of things of you've built this incredible product or you have this incredible technology, but if something in the experience of how people access it and make use of it breaks down, you know, it doesn't really work. And it's kind of like you, you know, developed this incredible medication or protocol to solve some issue, but the experience around how you actually stick with it is, is really painful. Like you don't, you don't get the benefit that you think you've delivered. So it sounds like, are, is there starting to be more emergent like research on the, I guess, sort of like longitudinal, you know, life of of patients in treatment, or like where are we in that journey of understanding that over the long term? So yes, I think there there is some strides moving forward to be able to better understand that experience. I think what is 
evolving is how we capture that experience. So again, I think it's heavily predicated on really those black and white quantitative metrics, you know, utilization, you know, volume, total scripts being filled. But what you're not necessarily capturing is is the why behind what we're seeing in that data. And so that's, I think, comes into play with everything, you know, Tiffany, that we've even been talking about, you know, and regarding the mental model diagram work that we did and the journey mapping work that we're doing. It's really ensuring that we're capturing those qualitative insights and ensuring that we have the right agency or individual with that type of experience to be able to tease out really the, the components that, that speak to the, to the hardcore quantitative data. Yeah, I think the next couple of years are going to be very interesting in relation to that, because as I mentioned earlier, with the government um, starting to require, you know, patient reported outcomes as being a key metric in in paying physicians that are participating in the government-based health plans, they're going to be forced into measuring that. And that's going to set the precedent for the private insurers as well. So I think there will be more measurement of it. And I think the fact that there's an economic loss based on the fact that, you know, physicians might not get paid or health, you know, particular groups of practice might not get paid. I think that's going to accelerate the initiatives around it to help make sure they're then doing the research to see why why aren't they able to stay on therapy? Why aren't they getting the outcomes? But there's there's a, a large river to cross between here and there. Yeah, you know, as we were talking about, it's it's hard enough to get a single large, say, pharmaceutical company to align across the entire company to provide a good experience. When you think about, as you were talking about, you know, this treatment was effective, but they lost their insurance. I'm curious, and this is a big question, I assume doesn't have an easy answer, but are pharmaceutical companies, say, and insurance companies trying to work together on some of this? Because I guess in a way you you have to, right, to provide that experience for for patients. So Aaron, yes, we have market access folks that work directly with the payers. We have, you know, our HEOR folks that are really providing the cost utilization and outcomes data to kind of craft that story. But I also would say we also have other ways to help support patients outside of that. So we know that insurance is a huge barrier, a huge barrier for patients. I can look at ourselves in patient experience and support. So that's the function area that I that I work in. We have a lot of programs. You know, if it's not covered through copay cards or manufacturer financial assistance, you know, we have our foundation. The foundation will help patients that may qualify, you know, based on certain aspects of their demographics. We also work directly with payers. We work directly with, you know, healthcare providers in order to help facilitate that prior authorization or appeals process. So there's different ways that pharma companies help navigate that water. But like Tiffany said, it's a big bridge. There's a lot of power behind, you know, formulary and tier status on an insurance. And when you look at specifically our Medicare population, your ability to affect that becomes quite small just because of a lot of the legal regulations that are in place around Medicare. So it's really ensuring to one of the things that we look heavily in is around the local advocacy groups, those offices of aging, you know, a lot of those support um, resources that are within those geographies to help tie patients that may qualify for low income subsidy or some of those, you know, state assistance programs. Again, you know, a lot of people, they're just not they just don't know that those resources are out there and they don't know how to engage with them. So that's another area where I think pharma can step in 
and really ensure that patients have all avenues accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. Help them work around and with the barriers versus getting rid of barriers that are maybe really, really hard to get rid of in the short term. (laughs) Yeah. Well, great. You know, this has been so educational for me and I think for probably a ton of our listeners. I'm curious if maybe from each of you, if you want to share just sort of like a a closing thought on things to keep in mind as working toward uh, being more patient-centric. Yeah, so I can just jump in. I think it's it's really simple. I mean, talk to the people that are going to be using your solution, your product, you know, involve them very early and ensure that you have the right representation at the table, um, making sure that you have, you know, adequate sampling within within your population that you're looking to glean those insights from. Yeah, I would second everything that Erica said and just say it also, you know, it does require organizational changes as well. It, it requires a lot of commitment from the top leadership downward to make sure that that's being put front and center. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, we have some advice we hear from researchers a lot in terms of, you know, choosing what organizations, you know, to work at and to have an influence is, you know, started in an organization that believes in research. <laughs> you know, if you start there, you're set up for, for better success. So it's great advice. 